0: I'm so glad to hear that. Hey, I'm very sorry to interrupt this. I actually, there's a part of me that thinks I should probably just sit down and let this keep going. This is fantastic. It's really great to be with you this morning. As Eric said, my name is Josh, Um, friend of Eric's. We go back a long way, go back to, I don't even know when, first time we met, but playing, playing basketball. Yeah, right. Playing basketball back at Vanguard back in the day. Um all sorts of good times there. Um and then yeah, as Eric mentioned, he's pulled together this amazing uh group of pastors that I've been privileged to be a part of and very grateful for his leadership in that. Um and I just found out today uh that I've actually known Eric's wife, Kathy, a lot longer than I've known Eric, which is it's embarrassing that I've just discovered this because hi Kathy. Because for all these years I've known Eric, he's been talking about his wife, Kathy, and I was like, Oh, that's great. And then today we were just sitting down here talking. I don't know why never, we've never done this before. He's like, You know my wife, right? And I said, Kathy, yeah, I've heard you talk about Kathy. He says, so what's her maiden name? He said, Bradley. And I was just like, my mind was blown because we went to school together. I mean, we knew each other really well. And it's the first time we've seen each other in years. So it's great to see you too. Very embarrassing, but <laughs> it's glad, glad to finally make the connection. Um, so I'm really grateful to be with you all today. That little story kind of epitomizes this experience for me. As I look around the room, I see lots of faces, lots of family and friends. And I'm really, really grateful to be here with you this morning. Um, Eric invited me to share with you guys out of uh, Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 20. Um, 20 verses of really beautiful, dense stuff. So we're going to try to work our way through it in a timely manner. Uh, he told me you guys are good until about 1 o'clock today. Is that... Is that no? Some, some people are nodding. All right. All right. All right. We'll see where it goes. Okay. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore... As dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a person as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For once, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. and find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it was said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us and have not left us to figure out this world on our own. You have given us wisdom. You've given us truth. Father, I pray today we would hear it. Would your words sink deep in our hearts? Would we leave this place changed? Not just listening, not just hearing, but doing what it is we hear. We love you and we thank you that you love us so much. Amen. All right. A lot of stuff to talk about here. We're not going to go through this passage uh, verse by verse because there's just too much. And there may be some parts of here that uh, in this passage that we don't hit today. And I apologize for that. This is a uh, really, really good stuff, really dense stuff. But uh, rather than kind of going line by line through it, what I'd like to do is pull out a few major themes four to be precise that this that this passage talks to the first one is this. Uh, who is God? This is a question we want to consider in this passage who is God? The second one, who am I? The third one, how do I live? And the fourth one, how do I do it? Right? How do I live the way that I'm supposed to live? So we start with who is God, because that's uh, that's where you should start. <laughs> that's where I, This is advice I give people when they approach the Bible for the first time, because a lot of people... We'll pick up the Bible and say, I'm I'm reading this today in order to get something for myself out of it. You know, I have my daily devotions and my hope is that I'll get something today that will speak to me, that will teach me how to live my life. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that as long as we have the order right. Whenever you approach the Bible, start with the question, who is God? Right? The Bible is not primarily a book that reveals to us ourselves, although that happens. That's secondary, though. Primary, the God is, uh, the the, the Bible is a book that reveals to us the character and nature of God. So we have sort of two different ways of reading the Bible. One is called a theocentric reading, theo meaning God. So, uh, we have a God-centered reading where I read a text, any text of scripture, and I ask the question, what does this text tell us about God? There's also the anthropocentric reading, right, which is the human-centered reading, which I read a text and say, what am I supposed to do on the basis of what I read? Now, those are both valuable things, but if we get the order wrong, we're going to miss the entire thing. We start with the character of God, not with the character of the people in the stories. So when you read, let me give you an example. When you read a story about David and Goliath, the story is not primarily about how brave David was or how prayerful he was or, or how victorious he was. The story is about a God who fights on behalf of his people. right? If we read a story about um, Samson, it's not about how strong Samson was. It's about a God who will actually use somebody in spite of himself to save his people, right? The character of God is literally on every page of Scripture. So we start there. We ask the question, who is God and what is he doing? And given this understanding then, we can we can then understand ourselves more. It's not just about reading the Bible. It's actually, that's good advice for all of life. Start with God and then move to yourself. If you do that order right, everything will be okay. Because you're made in the image of God. The Bible makes this really clear. Genesis chapter 1. You are created in the image of God. So the best way to know yourself, to know the person looking back at you in the mirror, is to know God. A.W. Tozer, great theologian, says it like this. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Interesting, isn't it? What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think it's true if you think about it. That big who is God question shapes the way you live your life. If God is sort of distant, then you live your life independent. If God is angry, then you live your life uh, trying to avoid wrath. Your perspective on God will shape the way you walk on a day-to-day basis. So we have to start with the character of God. Here's the, the moral of the story. You guys got it a long time ago. I'm just beating this into the ground now. The moral of the story is if you start with God, you get yourself too. If you start with yourself, you don't get either. Look at the world today. That's true. That's a true statement. A lot of people saying that the primary question is, who am I? You start with that question, and you're just going to be kind of a kite without a string. (laughs) Just blowing around on the breeze. Which, as a friend of mine says, what's a kite without a string? It's just trash blowing in the wind. (laughs) Right? But you have that string connecting you to a a reality, to to a permanent source, to a rock, to an anchor. And now you have a capacity to soar. What we're talking about here. Who is God? So who is God in this text? Uh, the interesting thing about this text is this text uh, in, in, uh, that we've just read here in, in uh, Ephesians 5 is actually uh, mostly rules, mostly behaviors that are expected of us. There's not a whole lot that we see of the character of God in this, except for the beginning. Look at the very beginning. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. So what Paul is saying here, and I love the way the book of Ephesians is set up because it's uh, actually um, making clear what we've just said first three chapters of Ephesians, as you guys probably remember, is all about God. It's all about what he's done. And then here in chapter 4 and chapter 5, especially in chapter 6, Paul says, okay, on the basis of what he's done, on the basis of who he is, now here's how you live. Chapter 5 starts out that way. Follow God's example. So what is God's example? Can I recap for us for just a few seconds? Here's what you've learned in the book of Ephesians. I've just picked out some of the, the key verses. That God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, He predestined us to adoption, uh, for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He has lavished on us. He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in sin. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. This is who God is. This is what He does. He lavishes His blessing on us. He chooses us. He adopts us. He forgives us. He redeems us. He reveals His will to us. He gives us His Spirit. He loves us. He is rich in mercy. He makes us alive in Christ even when we don't deserve it. He exalts us with Jesus, giving us the reward that Jesus deserves. He goes on expressing his riches to us, his grace to us, not just in this life, but in the coming ages. He is our peace, both between us and himself and between us and everyone else. That's who God is. Pretty great, yeah? (laughs) That's who he is. That's his character. And Paul sums it up here in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, follow God's example. He sums it up with one word. He says, walk the way of love. Another writer in the Bible, a guy named John, says God is love. You want to understand his character. You want to understand who he is. It's all rooted in that word. And Paul gives us an image here. He says, as dearly loved children, follow God's example. And I love this because in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Paul sets up the whole, this whole image of being children of God. When he says that God chose us for adoption to sonship. I think it's such a beautiful picture. This adoption picture, Uh, and I think we miss it um, sometimes in our culture because oftentimes in our culture, um, adoption is seen as sort of a less than. It's it's seen as a as a plan B. You know, we make jokes when your kid isn't behaving. What do you tell? What does the sibling tell him? Mom says you're adopted, right? You, You you make some sort of a joke about it as if it's something less than. But but the problem I think is when we do that, we miss the real power of what Paul is saying here. This image pops up for Paul over and over and over again throughout his letters. It means something significant because Paul grew up in the Roman Empire. And the understanding of adoption in the Roman Empire is slightly different than the understanding today. You see, there was adoptions that happened. This is a normal thing. We can read about it in ancient writings. But we learn about uh, uh, adoption in the Roman Empire is that um, well four things. First of all, adoption is a choice. I think oftentimes in our culture, we think of it as a, as a plan B. And, and you've got to understand, I'm a big adoption advocate. No matter how you get there, amen, praise the Lord, let me know how I can help you, right? No matter how you get there. But uh, one of the things we see in the Roman Empire is adoption is chosen. It was a choice that people stepped into, not that they felt forced into. And when they chose to adopt a child, it was a remarkably expensive thing. It cost them a lot of money. It was, it was something mostly um, that we see up until... Uh, the church started taking in kids. It was something that mostly we see rich people doing. Uh, you'd adopt a child in order to secure an heir for yourself, one that you might not have had otherwise. Um, and so it was a remarkably expensive transaction. And like I just said, when you adopted a child in the Roman Empire, uh, you were bringing that child into your home and saying, everything that I have, I intend to give to you. I intend to give you all of the riches of my kingdom, which is pretty remarkable things to say. We, we actually see precedence where nobility would adopt children into their family and what they were saying is i don't know what your story was before maybe i do but what your story is now is everything that i have is yours and here's the craziest part about adoption in the roman empire what makes this metaphor so powerful you could never reverse that decision in the roman empire which is really fascinating because it was there are actually cases um, from a couple thousand years ago of of parents disowning their own kids in court You could walk into a Roman court and you could literally say, I am no longer my biological child's parent. That was something that happened from time to time. You could, however, not do that with an adopted child. Interesting, huh? You could legally disown your biological child, but you could never legally disown an adopted child. Now, what is Paul saying here when he says, you are children of God, you've been adopted in the family of God? He's saying this is true of you. Listen, this is true of you. God chose you you were not a plan b to him he chose you he predestined you before the foundations of the earth in christ jesus he selected you and he paid a high price for you he paid a high price for you he sent himself he sacrificed his son to bring you into his family it was the the blood of jesus it was the sacrifice of jesus he says in this passage that brought you into the family of god and when he did this You didn't come in as a second-class citizen. You didn't come in sort of, well, you know, they're adopted in. We're going to put them off to the side and just give them the scraps from the table. No, he says the kingdom is yours, right? Ask him. Ask him. Whatever you want in his name, and he'll give it to you. It is the Father's delight, we read in the Gospels, to give you what? The kingdom. Wow. It's his delight to give you the inheritance of Jesus. And he will never change his mind. He will never change his mind about you. Jesus says in the Gospels that there is nothing that can take you out of his hand. It's a powerful picture. It's powerful for my family and I. We have three children, all of whom are adopted. God told us um, about 12 years ago, my wife Heather is sitting back here. She's going to get mad at me for pointing her out, but she's right there. There she is. Hand goes up kind of halfway. God told us about 12 years ago that our home was to be a home where orphans become sons and daughters. That was our plan A. That's how we were to build our family. And I got to tell you that everything I just said about adoption, we've seen it to be true. Just seen it to be true in so many possible ways. Adopted our our daughters together um, about 11 years ago, biological sisters. When they came into our home that first day, it was like, yep. First time we held them. These are our These are our kids cannot imagine loving anybody more than I love these kids and nothing will ever change that they're teenagers now I can say that with confidence nothing will ever change that I remind myself on a daily basis nothing will ever change that um and then three years ago we uh we brought um our son into our home uh, through fo- through the foster system we we're able to adopt him a little over a year ago um Elijah he's four years old now and I'm sure he's tearing apart your family's building right now so ap- apologies for that um same thing when they, when he showed up at our door. He's covered in a blanket after having the most horrific day any person can possibly imagine. He comes to us with one sock on, no possessions in the world covered in a blanket in the arms of a social worker. And when she peeled back the blanket, my wife and I both gasped because it was our kid. She was holding our son and we can't imagine feeling any different about him and nothing will ever change that. And I tell you that story to say I know how it feels. So I have the gospel living in my house on a daily basis. I know this metaphor. I know the power of it firsthand. The gospel lives in our house. It eats at our dinner table. The gospel eats a lot, guys. (laughs) But this is a powerful picture. Who is God? God is your father. He has adopted you because he loves you. He intends to give you the kingdom, and nothing will ever change his mind about you. And we start there. Why? Because what's going to follow next is a bunch of rules. What's going to follow next is a whole bunch of behaviors, sort of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, which um, if we get them out of context, if we start with ourselves and we start with the rules, notice Paul hasn't done that in the book of Ephesians either. He didn't just dive in and say, this is how you should behave. He starts with the character of God. Because if you start with the rules, if you start with, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, then this religion, this faith is like every other one. We have a distant, controlling, capricious God who just wants to ruin your fun. Who gives you all of these rules as a gateway into his kingdom. Do these things and you will be saved. That's how every religion works. At its core, every religion has this sort of karmic system. You do good things Good things happen. You do bad things, bad things happen. I have a friend who's Indian, from India, and him and I talk about this often. And he says when he preaches the gospel in India, it's really simple, because all he has to say is, Jesus changes karma. You see? There's this system where I kind of, sort of, have these good things that pile up, or these bad things that pile up, and depending on how they go, I end up in one place or the other. And he says, no, 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 no. No, no. This is not about... Earning your way into salvation. That's not what these behaviors are. This is about what you do now that you're saved. You see? This is not about a distant, controlling, capricious, sort of, you know, just irritating God who just wants to ruin your fun. This is, remember, this is your father who loves you. The stuff that he's telling you, he's telling you because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. He doesn't just know it distantly. Remember, he says, follow Christ's example. He came to you. He came to you. He knows what you went through. And so when he speaks to you in his word, he is talking as one who has first hand experience of what it means to be human. The book of Hebrews says he was tempted in every way, but did not sin. So Jesus knows, God knows, God can relate with you. He's a father who loves you and wants what's best for you. And these rules are not rules to ruin your fun or to earn your salvation. These are what you do now that you've been saved. It's not so that you can be adopted. Remember, that's done already. You are adopted. Nothing will ever change his mind. What he's saying here is, now that you are daughters of the king, now that you are sons of the king, act like it. You are loved, Lighthouse Community Church. You are loved. Now live loved. That's what we're talking about here. And now he unpacks what that means. It's, again, I don't talk about my kids in every sermon, but this is just, when you talk about adoption, this is just too rich a metaphor to pass up. I remember when we, um, when we got our girls, they, they were in Ethiopia. We flew to Ethiopia to pick them up and met them for the first time. And it was, uh, we got there on Christmas Day in 2007. And um, our bags got lost on the way to Ethiopia. So we had bags full of Christmas presents and all this stuff for these, for these beautiful little girls who were two and four at the time. And we got there and we had nothing for four days. Four days it took for our bags to show up, (laughs) going to the the airport every single day, checking for it. And finally, on the fourth day, they showed up, and I brought them home, and the girls were sitting in the room with Heather, um, and we opened up these bags and started giving them presents from their family, clothes that we had bought for them, all this sort of stuff. And I I remember when we first got them, they had the outfits that they came with. Again, nothing else in the world. And... um, we, you know, over four days, we tried to make it work with the same outfits over and over and over again. We bought a couple of random things at the, the hotel gift shop. But for the most part, they're just wearing the clothes that they had come to us in. And then these clothes show up in these bags. I mean, ridiculous. Like, you, you guys seen uh, a Christmas story? You know, and they tear into the presents and there's just stuff laying everywhere. That's exactly what it looked like. As the girls started going through these bags with their stuff and um, pulling out these clothes and examining them and then moving on to the next and the next and the next... And I'll tell you what, they never wore those clothes that they came to us in again. Never in their lives. Why? Because those were orphan clothes. Now they had clothes from a family. And what Paul is saying here is, look, the behaviors that made sense before, by which you secured yourself before, with you, you clothed yourself with, or, or, or the ways you coped in the world and navigated, they don't make sense anymore. Now that you are children of the king. It's not God trying to control you or ruin your fun. He's trying to actually give you life, abundant life. And he's saying to you, don't go back to the alleys. Don't go back to the dumpsters. You don't have to eat in there anymore. I have a table prepared for you. That's what this is about. Live loved, he says. So he unpacks for us here then a whole bunch of things that used to make sense before we were children of the king. He gives us sort of this list of behaviors, this list of things that just aren't us anymore. And this, uh, comparatively, if you've read some of Paul's other letters like the book of Romans, um, you'll know that um, he's famous for these lists of sins. You know, and oftentimes they're pretty pretty extravagant, pretty long and pretty detailed. This one is actually a lot less... Um, How do I say this? A lot less robust. He just sort of points out three different sets of behaviors. But what what he's really doing here is kind of giving us the whole spectrum of possible ways that we can try to navigate our lives apart from God, right? Uh, He actually, uh, he gives us another metaphor. Uh, He says, uh, once you were darkness and now you are light in Christ. Fascinating, isn't it? He doesn't say once you lived in darkness. He says, once you were darkness, that's a remarkably bleak picture of human nature, but really really accurate if you look at the world around us today it's not that you're walking in darkness it's that you have been consumed by it you have been overtaken by it apart from apart from him you have lost your capacity to shine in the way you were made to shine but then jesus came and he brought light into your darkness and what happens when you shine a light in the darkness It's not that you just illuminate the darkness, it's that you transform it in nature. It's not just that Jesus shines on you. He changes your nature from darkness to light. You have become something entirely new for your sake and for the sake of the world. Because light is then intended to shine into the darkness. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are a candle, a lamp set high on a table to illuminate an entire room. And Paul's saying here, if you fail to do that, if you fail to live out of who you are, you can't do what you're supposed to do. My friends, the church is supposed to be a light in the darkness. It's supposed to be a redemptive presence in a world that is going downhill quickly. It's supposed to be a different voice in culture. And in politics, and in racial ethics, and in gender relationships, and in everyday money and finances and sexuality, in everything, we're supposed to be a redemptive voice, a redemptive presence that changes the dynamics of the rooms that we walk into. You're light. So Paul is saying here, be light. You're loved, so live loved. And the behaviors he points out here are not light and are not love. They're what you used to be, but are no longer. He gives us a spectrum of behaviors, starting with sexual immorality, moving to greed and ending up with, um, obscenity and, and, uh, what, how does he put it exactly? Obscenity. Um, somebody help me out here. Yes. Foolish talk and coarse joking. Thank you. So that's kind of the spectrum he gives us. I'm not going to highlight or go into detail on any one of these because Paul doesn't. He just sort of mentions them in passing. But I'll uh, point out a couple things. First, he starts with sexual immorality. Now, the point of this, and he brings it up often in all of his letters, because the reality is, in the Roman world, uh, sexual immorality was rampant just like it is today. This is something that humanity has struggled with, that has been a broken part of our humanity because of sin ever since the beginning, ever since sin entered. Start in Genesis, you'll see it right off the bat. Sin enters and sexuality is broken. And people now use it not as a way of loving others or loving themselves or loving God, but use it as a way of exerting power over other people and damaging themselves. Now, here's the deal. Every time Paul brings it up, it's really, really uncomfortable. And so what we often do with this, this idea of sexual immorality, is we project it onto somebody else, right? Right? Oh, oh! I know what he's talking about. He's talking about this sexual dysfunction or this one. And I just want to really encourage you, and this is something that, that I have to do as well, I want to encourage you to say, uh, you, know, you know what, I was born into a broken world as well. And my view of sexuality and sexual ethics were shaped by that broken world as well. The point of this list is not to identify somebody else's sin, it's to identify your own. And ask the question, how have I been more shaped by the world than by the gospel as it comes to this. The Bible's view of sexual ethics is flourishing and thriving. Every other one is not. So we take our cues from here, not from culture. Something I've been learning is if you follow culture, you end up where culture is (laughs) going. We can all see where that's headed. It's pretty obvious. So, we take our view of sexual ethics, sexual morality from the Bible, not from culture. But I, I love that Paul doesn't stop there. <laughs> he doesn't stop with sexuality because that's sort of the, the hot-button sin that every preacher loves to talk about. And actually, when you talk about it, as much as people um, don't like to hear it, it's, it's fascinating. People show up in droves. Remember the, the last church I was at, we had, um, we had a sermon on sexuality. And because it was such a hot-button topic, we said, you know what we'll do? Is we'll have a forum on Wednesday night after this Sunday and we'll invite people to come to it. And the place was packed. Just packed, because this is the hot-button sin in our culture today. People want to know what God has to say about sex and sexuality. Now, whether they actually go out and live it, I don't know. But they want to know. They want to talk about it. I have a feeling if we go to the next sin, the next behavior on the list, I have a feeling if we were to put together a forum on that, the room would be largely empty. Because Paul talks about greed. Oh, man, why would the room be empty? Because I don't want to know what God has to say about it. This is one of those cooler sins. It's actually one of those acceptable sins. We all know that the sexual stuff, it's not acceptable. But greed, well, first of all, we're swimming in it. That's the culture we live in. And we have become so acclimated to it that I, so, I sometimes think, and this is myself included, I am every bit as implicated as anybody else in these verses. We just are unaware of how damaging it is this consumeristic, materialistic world that we live in where all of your resources exist simply to build your kingdom. Oh, it's so damaging. It's every bit as damaging to the life of the Spirit in you as sexual immorality. That's why Paul always includes it. If you look at the lists, he starts with sexual immorality and he always includes greed. And we always (laughs) drop it off because we all struggle with it. What you do with your finances, what you do with your time, what you do with your talents and your passions matter to God. You are the light of the world. If you just exercise those things inside your circle for your sake, the world's going to be missing out on the light that God has made you to be. Your time, your money, your talent exists so that you can live loved, so that you can live light in those areas. Think of um, kind of a famous story uh, in Genesis, uh, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys remember this story? Really nasty place is Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and God decides, uh, you know, we, we read all these terrible stories about them in Genesis, and finally God decides he's going to burn them to the ground. Long, long story behind it, but he actually does fire and brimstone the whole thing, right? Um, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God is having a conversation with the prophet about the city of Jerusalem, with whom he's saying, I'm about to do the same thing. And he says he asked this question of the prophet. He says, "What was the sin of your sister Sodom?" Which is interesting. Already, you don't want to be associated with that family. Your sister Sodom. What was the sin of your sister Sodom? And everybody in Jerusalem raises their hand because they have the right answer. The answer, if we read Genesis, is that they, they, the sexual immorality in that culture was just rampant. Like all sorts of dysfunctions, all sorts of stuff that was shameful. And everybody in Jerusalem raises their hand and says, it's because of that, that's why God destroyed them. That was their sin. And God responds and says what? She was arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. She did not care for the poor and the needy. And the wind is now sucked out of all of our, all of our stomachs and out of everybody in Jerusalem because they did the same thing. No, the sin of Sodom was greed. Greed. Greed, which prevented them from caring for the poor and the needy. Greed, which prevented them from shining, from being the city on a hill they were made to be. And he says to Jerusalem, you do the same thing. And he says to us, me, you do the same thing. Greed is every bit as damaging to the work of God in you and through you as anything else. What does it look like to live light in the area of your finances? Your time, your talent. What does it look like to live loved and loving with your money, with the stuff you have? And then he moves on to the words we use. Talks about obscenity and foolish talk. Interesting, isn't it? Book of James says the tongue is a fire that can destroy anything it comes in contact with. You know, God has stuff to say about the words we use. Because our words are powerful. Our words can actually affect people in tremendous ways. I was just at a training um, a couple days ago in in Dallas. I was invited out to this training for faith leaders. It was a, a non-profit organization called Over Zero. And what they do is they talk to faith leaders and other leaders in communities about how communication shapes public awareness. Specifically, they, they uh, specialize in the areas of of um, social violence. So they have been around the world studying mass uh, examples of mass violence, whether it's genocides or election-related violence, and they have found that at the root of every one of those is somebody speaking. That there are words that are being spoken, whether via pamphlets or over a radio or in person, that sort of starts this cycle of hatred. And perpetuates a cycle of hatred that ultimately ends in things like the Rwandan genocide. Or ends in what we see in Bosnia. Or, or, or ends in what's happening even with ISIS. That there's communication. There are words that we use behind that. And I know those are extreme examples. But the reality is, our father who loves us and has adopted us into a family has stuff to say about the words that we use. Don't let them be idle. Don't let them be foolish. Don't let them be obscene. That's improper. That's improper for you now that you are children of God. It's really fascinating to me because we live in this great nation for which I'm very thankful that has a bill of rights. And the first of those rights is the First Amendment, the freedom of speech. You know what's interesting though? The First Amendment's not found anywhere in the Bible. I'm, I'm grateful for it, don't get me wrong. But my identity as an American citizen is secondary to my identity as a child of God. And in the family of God, there is no guarantee of freedom of speech. As a matter of fact, our Father, our King, says there are things which you ought not say. There are ways that you ought not engage and perpetuate the cycles that we hear in the world today. I'm so devastated when I read comments to news posts or Facebook pages by people who call themselves or maybe are followers of Jesus, but they talk just like everybody else does. They are not a redemptive voice with their words. They're perpetuating something that's broken, something that is unloving, something that is dark and devastating. And Paul here says, no, 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 you're light and loved. What does it mean to live loved with your words? What does it mean to be light in communication in the areas that are spoken? If I had to sum this whole thing up, what Paul is telling us here is be who you are. Be who you already are in Christ. You are loved, you are light. Be loved and be light. And it's a fascinating thing to say. Because why would he have to say that? Well, if you are something, aren't you just naturally going to be that thing? And the answer is no, 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 no. No, it's not that easy. There is... I have become keenly aware over the years of following Jesus that there's a gap between who I am and who I am. Anybody else? Who I am in Christ. I know it. I know it. I know it to be true. And it is true. He's not just changed my behavior. He's changed my nature. But there is nevertheless a gap. The reality is I have been all of these broken things longer than I've been a follower of Jesus. And closing that gap, the scholars call it the sanctification gap, is the work of the Spirit in me. Now that I am adopted in the family of God, I'm not just suddenly, everything's good. No, no, no. I have to, I have to learn what it means. I lived on the streets for so long. I learned to cope on the streets. Not really. I mean, I grew up in kind of a white, pretty comfortable setting, but you guys get the idea. <laughs> lived on the streets for a long time. Thank you. You guys are all thinking, oh, he's got a backstory. Not really. But anyway, but, but having to adjust now to life in a family, the life in the family of God is different. We have to learn what that looks like. Paul says in the book of Philippians, he says, um, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Fascinating, huh? To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. You get the picture? Jesus has taken hold of you. You are his. Now he's asking you to take hold of him. This picture makes perfect sense to me um, because I have a four-year-old that sometimes I take to the grocery store. And I've discovered that it's entirely possible for me to be holding my four-year-old's hand while he is not holding mine at all. You guys, Have you guys seen this before? Especially when you walk past the, the cereal, he loves cereal, the cereal aisle. <laughs> He's pulling his hand out of mine and I'm dragging him through the grocery store. And sometimes that's how we think about Jesus. And that's that's how we treat Jesus. He's dragging us from here to kingdom come. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. I want to take hold of him just as he's taken hold of me. He goes on in Philippians to say, only let us live up to what we have already attained. You hear that? I've already attained it. Now let me live up to it. Let me be who I am. Let's leave behind the old stuff. Let's leave behind the orphan clothes. Let's leave behind what used to make sense because it's not you anymore. And live light and live loved. Paul said those old behaviors, he goes on to say, those old behaviors incur the wrath of God. And you might be thinking, oh, wait, we're talking about the love of God. What do you mean the wrath of God? Those two things are incompatible. And I said, no, 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 not at all. For God to be fully loving, he has to have wrath. He has to be angry at the things that kill the kids he loves. You see? (laughs) This stuff is damaging to you. If your father loves you, he has to hate it. He has to be against it. He has to be angry at the things that are killing us. And so the wrath of God and the love of God, they're not two separate things. People try to reconcile them. I say they're the same thing. God's love is a river that is flowing. You have an option. You can oppose the river and try to swim against it. And you're going to get a face full of water. You are now opposed to the love of God and experiencing the wrath of God. Or you can turn and you can swim downstream with it and experience it as blessing that carries you along into your life. It's the same thing. God is wrathful because he's loving. And he wants what's best for you. He he goes on to say here that nobody who participates in these things will have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Actually, that's not what he says. He says, in the kingdom of Christ or of God. Which is really interesting. He's not just being redundant here. Almost all uh, scholars that I consulted on this one agree that he's talking about two kingdoms that will merge into one. The kingdom of Christ began when Jesus set foot on the earth and announced the kingdom. And when he returns, he returns to usher in the kingdom of God. And at that point, the kingdom of Christ merges into the kingdom of God. What's he saying here? He's not saying simply that if you continue in these behaviors that you will miss out on heaven when you die. He's also saying you'll miss out on the kingdom of Christ while here on earth. He's got good things for you. Not just when you die, but today. You know that? Your father has good stuff for you today and through you for everyone around you today. And you'll miss it if you continue to go back to who you were instead of living into who you are. So, how do you do it, though? Real quick. How do you live into who you are? Because it's one thing to know all this stuff. It's another thing to do it. Anybody else? I've following into Jesus for a long time, and I still struggle. Um, and that, uh, that's because I think um, belief and character, this gap, belief and character need something in between to bridge the two. That something in between, by the way, is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work of bridging the gap between who you are and who you are. But Paul says something really fascinating here at the end of the passage. He says, do not be drunk with wine or filled with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. What's fascinating about that is it's not a one-time thing. In Greek, the the wording here is actually go on being filled with the Spirit. So it's not filled once at conversion. people often get in this argument about when you have the Holy Spirit. Do I have the Holy Spirit when I'm saved? Do I have to have a second experience? And I say to you, I don't want... uh, Somebody asked me once, do you believe in a second experience of the Holy Spirit? And I said, yes, a second filling. Yes, I do. It comes right between the first and right before the third. I mean, honestly, you who are in relationships, do you want one experience of your spouse, one experience of a friend? No, I want another and another and another. That's what a relationship is. Go on being filled with the spirit. What's fascinating is he's commanding you to do it. In other words, it's the spirit who does the work, but you have to put yourself in a position, a posture to participate with the work of the spirit in you. Go on being filled. Put yourself in a position to where he will and can do that work in you. Belief, character, the spirit. How do I participate with the spirit? Behaviors. Actions. Disciplines that open me up to more of the life of the Spirit. Traditionally we've called these spiritual disciplines. These are not things that you do to earn God's grace. You have it already. These are things that you do to now participate in His grace. To walk in step with Him. Again, not so that you can be saved, but because you are saved. Open yourself up to Him through the disciplines. Paul gives us a few here. Again, the list is not exhaustive. We could talk about fasting or Sabbath or Scripture reading or prayer. Paul just gives us three things here, though, that I want to end with. How can I today, in light of who God is, in light of who I am, go on to live the way He's called me to live? The first thing Paul says here is, Avoid any foolishness and instead instead seek the will of God. Okay? The first discipline is obedience. And I know that sounds funny. Because we're talking about how do I obey God more and you're saying that the answer is obedience. What I mean by this is do the next thing he's asking you to do. Okay? Small obediences enable large obediences. If you expect to be ready to lay down your life when God asks you, But you haven't done the small things on a daily basis that he's asked you to do. You're not going to be ready to perform in the moment. So many of us, myself included, show up in a moment of crisis and expect to be like Jesus and then are surprised when we're not. Well, it's because we didn't do the small things that Jesus did on a daily basis. Obedience to the will of God in the ordinary, in the simple, in the day-to-day will enable large obedience. Dallas Willard, I think we have this quote. We'll put it on the screens. Dallas Willard says this really fascinating thing. He says, um, a discipline, let me get this quote here. A discipline is something in my power or ability to do, which I choose to do in order to enable me to do what I cannot yet do directly. Everybody <laughs> with that? With me on this? There's something that I want to do that I can't do by direct effort, so I do disciplines, these small things that enable that larger obedience along the way. We do this with every other area of life. You want to run a marathon? Me either. But say you did, (laughs) say you did, what do you do? You don't go out and run 26.2 today, you run one today. And those small obediences make larger obediences possible. So the first spiritual discipline is simply obedience. The next thing Jesus asks you to do, do it. And then after that, and then after that, and pretty soon, you'll find yourself growing in your capacity to be like him. Second thing, number two, he says, sing. Oh man, I love this one you know how many times the Bible commands us to sing? Everywhere. It's everywhere. The Psalms are full of it. He says, sing. Sing to one another. Did you notice that? Sing to one another with Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing truths about God are ways that we reinforce our identities for ourselves and for one another. When you sing to somebody something that is true or sing with somebody something that is true, it reinforces in them something deep. That's why we worship together. That's why we take time at the beginning and end of service to sing these songs. Not just because it's fun, but because we are proclaiming truth over one another. Sing to each other and sing to God, he says. I just think this discipline of music is so vital in the life of the church. We could have a whole sermon on that, but we won't. Last one. Thanksgiving. Paul here offers gratitude, thanksgiving, praise as the antithesis of greed and sexual immorality and gossip and foolish talk and obscenity. He says the opposite of all those things is thanksgiving. You want to start changing the way you behave on a daily basis. Start your day with gratitude. It'll change everything for you because when we come to God and our first words out of our, out of our mouths are what we want from him or a complaint that we have or something we're afraid of now all that's valid i want you to talk to God about whatever's on your heart but when you bring that stuff and you put all that stuff before him first it shows you what's at the center of your life at the center of your life is anxiety and fear and worry and all sorts of other things but what is really at the center of the universe the love of God It's his love that holds it all together. So how about we start there? Start with gratitude for a God who loves us and lavishes his blessings on us. Start with a discipline of thanksgiving. And some days it will be a discipline. Make no mistake about it. It will be hard work. But start there. And you'll see things change. I promise you. Thanksgiving, I think Matthew Henry said, is the serious business of heaven. You read any picture of heaven... From the prophets in the Old Testament and New. And what do you see? You see angels and people and weird looking creatures falling down on their faces and praising God. And if that's what's happening up there, then that's what I want to be happening in here too. So who is God? He's your father who loves you. Who are you? You are loved and you are light. What do you do? Act like it. How? How? Little steps of obedience that enable larger obedience. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so grateful for this church, for a room full of people who want to know you more. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fill this place with your presence now. Any words that have been spoken today that are, that are of you, would they plant deep in the soil of our lives and transform us in any words that were are not? Um, we'll, we can just let those go. Father, we love you. We are in awe of the fact that you love us. Help us never to forget that and give us the courage to live like it's true. Amen.